0: Welcome to Why We Wander, we talk about why people travel, the experiences that have transformed their lives, and how the travel landscape is evolving to meet the demands of a changing world.
1: Ashley, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. It's really a delight to chat with you.
1: To get us started, you can tell us about the kind of
2: work that you do and how you came to do it. Of course. So I'm a historian for the Smithsonian, and I work specifically at the National Museum of American History. And that's one of over 20 museums that make up uh, the Smithsonian, and it's located right on the National Mall. So, you know, I have my PhD in history, and my position as a historian at the museum actually allows me to express my interest in his history and my passion for it in many different ways, which I really love uh, about my day to day work. So I am an academic. I am working on a book project that is about the historic street food of New Orleans, and that is based on uh, my dissertation and now i'm adapting it into a book i'm also working on another book project about an amazing chef named lena richard who i've um, done exhibitions on and also written blog posts about but i'm working with her granddaughter right now to share her story with a broader audience and and that's been an incredibly fulfilling Um, experience over the past decade, actually. We've been been working on this together. But beyond that kind of traditional academic writing, um, I also do public cooking demonstrations at the museum. So I get on stage, we actually have a kitchen stage in the heart of the Museum of American History. And we invite community members, home cooks, professional chefs to come into the museum and prepare a dish live on stage and we talk about its ingredients um, its historic preparation how it reflects major themes in u.s history everything you know ranging from victory gardens and and rationing in world war ii to um, the deep and profound influences of west african culinary traditions on the united states um, for hundreds of years for example and so i find that a really Engaging and lively way to bring our audiences into conversations about history. I also, you know, working at a museum, design and curate exhibits along with my colleagues on the American Food History Project team. And, you know, last but not least, we go out into the field, as we say, and we travel across the country. Uh, This would be pre COVID to interview. Americans about their experiences with food as community members, as a way of building community. We interview restaurateurs and chefs about their entrepreneurship and and their business endeavors. And we explore the power of food in our everyday lives. We record oral histories with a very diverse group of, of individuals and we house those at the museum. And sometimes we also collect objects that really represent um, a powerful element of their story, maybe tied to migration, or tied to overcoming race or gender barriers, or you know any manner of, of themes and important issues in our country, we really tried to examine them through the lens of food. So that's a really broad sweeping overview of my job as a historian uh, for the American Food History Project at the Museum of American History, but I got there You know, through a long journey, I'm sure we'll talk about it um, as we keep going through the podcast, but I fell in, uh, in love with museums as a young girl, I often went to museums in DC with my family and my mother was a food entrepreneur, my dad was a high school history teacher. And after many years of attempting to, you know, be a biologist and, and explore, working at a zoo and or an aquarium, I eventually came back to what was in front of me all along, which was food, which was the power of food and the role that it plays in all of our lives. So I, I choose to study the past of this country and places beyond it through that major interlocutor, which are the meals that we consume every day. Yeah.
0: Wow. Oh, can I have your job? Does everybody say that to you?
2: Many people say that. And I always (laughs) blush a little bit because I do feel that I have my dream job. I love my job so much and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful and often astounded on a daily basis that I get to do what I do. Um, for the museum and and you know it is really fun. it can be hard work, like any job, but it it's very fulfilling, and I think that's what we all strive for um when we can in our jobs to to feel fulfilled right
1: I wonder if you can say more about it being fulfilling work, especially because there are so many different approaches to the study of history and the study of the past, and I wonder if you could say, especially for audience members who might not be familiar with the the world of, of food history and the, the discipline, what it allows you to, to learn about the past that other approaches to history don't necessarily.
2: Of course. Um, so, I have always been drawn to the history of everyday people their lived experiences not necessarily um you know figures that are often written about who may have books entirely dedicated to their lives dozens of books abraham lincoln or thomas jefferson or these other figures like the founding fathers that have held such a a large place in in the american imagination in terms of what history is in this country and although i've learned so much from reading about those histories there are so many people the majority of people who have often been marginalized who've been pushed to the sides of of the narrative of our country and its making and so you know this goes back to the uh, the city that i focus on new orleans and when i was looking at new orleans i started in on on this history when i was an undergrad And the way that I got to know New Orleans was through its historic cookbooks. And as I was reading these books from the 1880s and 1890s, they were works often written by white women and white men about the origins of Creole cuisine, uh, the cuisine of the city of New Orleans. And there would be mentions of indigenous populations. There would be mentions in highly Romanticized and derogatory depictions of black Americans and their roles as food entrepreneurs and as innovators in our kitchen spaces, but in a way that didn't do justice or really celebrate and honor uh, the traditions and ingenuity of people working in food industries and in kitchens out in the streets as street vendors in the food markets, and I wanted to better understand their role in history and the way that i was able to get at that was through food because their stories are so often hidden um, just not captured in your quote-unquote traditional archive and it was through these cookbooks you know reading against the grain as we say that i was able to start to see a totally different reality a totally different understanding of how food economy and culture worked in New Orleans. There was a reason that Black women and street vendors of diverse backgrounds, many of them recent migrants from Italy and Germany, uh, the Caribbean, Latin America, there was a reason that they continued to crop up time and time again in these historic cookbooks and on historic postcards, in literature written about the city, And often they were depicted from that very privileged perspective of a white author who brought their own biases um, and myths about New Orleans. But I knew there was something more there. So I have really tried to pull apart those writings and depictions that are deeply seated with racial biases, xenophobia, sexism, to really get at this incredible, entrepreneurial spirit, this tenacity of everyday working people who, you know, they weren't just street vendors selling sweet treats, pralines, kala on the side of the road. They were people who were surviving. They were people who were carving a space out for themselves in an economy that tried to completely disenfranchise them, that denied them access to private property. But they had the tenacity to occupy public spaces, streets, city, city, you know, markets, corners, public squares and build their own businesses right there uh, on the ground, right? And I found that incredibly inspiring. And so food, the magic of it is that it enables us to see beyond a lot of the, um, just the hierarchies in our traditional archive spaces and, and get it everyday life. and and really respect the fact that food entrepreneurship for so many people was a way of surviving in these incredibly difficult situations, whether it was a slave society, uh, the Jim Crow United States, even in our present moment for recent migrants, street food vending, uh, small scale grocery stores continue to play, restaurants even, they're often the, the toehold, the space where where new, new migrants and community members can build a life for themselves. And I think that's an incredibly powerful thread that connects all of US history together. So that's what I think food can do, um, really t- turn history on its head um, and question dominant narratives of who had power and really show that, people who typically thought to have no power were actually setting prices they were shaping taste preferences they were openly defying local laws that that sought to stymie their their businesses and and i find that story of endurance and and creativity and strength uh really inspiring so in that way sharing those those stories with the public is incredibly fulfilling Um, Because I think it works towards our goal as a nation to recognize and celebrate a more equitable historical narrative, um, a more equitable and just understanding of our country and the difficulties of our past and our current moments.
0: Yeah, and I, I feel like in a lot of ways, um, when people travel, they're they're seeking to learn similar things. And I I think about your comments on street food and street vendors. And oftentimes, when people are encouraged to to visit a country or a region, they're encouraged to um, you know visit the markets, try the street food of that country. And I'm curious as a food historian um does that impact the way that you think about travel um and
2: how you travel certainly i would say so so before graduate school you know when i had the chance to travel in as an undergrad i i was always drawn to food so even before i knew quote unquote how to travel or the strategies that maybe more well-traveled people um, implemented as they got to know a community and and to honor and respect the communities that they were traveling in, I, oh, I just automatically sought out the local grocery store. Um, my, I mentioned my mom was a food entrepreneur. We actually owned gourmet grocery food stores in my hometown of Pittsburgh. And so I was always interested in the packaged goods available on grocery store shelves the arrangement in the in the kinds of produce that were sold in in local grocery stores the prices the marketing uh, on the packages and things like that but then also i often found myself walking and finding the local fruit market or you know the art the arts market in a in a neighborhood or trying to go into the local butcher shop and 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 get a sampling of, of different cuts of meat or if there was a cheese shop i would do that as well so i think food early on in my travel played a really important role street food as well Um, to be able to just interact with people and this kind of changed after graduate school or in graduate school rather i had the chance to travel to morocco at one point um, just uh, for fun but really i had the secret the secret ambition of of getting to know um the market scene in morocco more i had been studying the french atlantic worlds and i had studied in the archives new orleans market scene um, colonial saint-domingue this would have been haiti in the colonial period their market scene i was interested in in kind of the french atlantic empire like i said and I was also curious to know how markets operated in Paris. I, I traveled there and did archival research in Paris, and I wanted to to see in what ways market cultures were similar or different in Morocco. And so I spent a lot of time there, just walking the city streets, just um, taking in the sights and sounds of the marketplaces. They have brilliant markets in Morocco. Um, they're just they wind their ways through the the medinas of of fez for example or marrakesh and i had the chance to just chat with vendors um and we spoke in french together i was brushing off the rust on my french and was able to to chat with many vendors and and just have conversations about life about ourselves about the products they were selling but that was a really special moment to, to go beyond just being a passive um, consumer, right, just going and, and buying something and moving on, but to take the time to, and if the person was willing, of course, to, to have a conversation and learn about each other and, and talk about, you know, there's often a topic was what are the differences between American culture and Moroccan culture and, and just different Conceptions of identity, and you know, it was it was a really wonderful and and vulnerable and open time. But I do think there is different ways of engaging with food, and what I want to get to is that there are, of course, problematic ways of engaging with street food or or market culture. Um, mm. That I think, especially, you know, you hear stories of Americans. Um, who may not be used to haggling culture for example feeling taken advantage of and and i think criticizing wrongly the cultures of communities that have a different economic culture and and social you know kind of social system of engaging with each other around the sale and and consumption of food and so i try to be very mindful of that to not overstep to be respectful Um, to not demand too much time of the people I do um, strike up conversations with and, and at the end of the day, just really respect the, the livelihoods that they make for themselves. I mean, I think of Singapore and these families, you know, eating in the hawker stalls in Singapore, and someone may have worked on a single dish, perfected a particular dish in maybe over 40 years, you know what I mean? That's, that's, art that's labor that's sweat and tears and 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 dedication and so it's very powerful but like i said i think we have to be mindful of of how we approach food as well just to pay respect where it's due in terms of of food culture and and the people who run these businesses
0: yeah, I think those are some really good pieces of advice that you just um, added in at the end there for for people traveling to markets maybe for the first time and thinking they kind of know the ropes and, and then making a mess of it or, um, you know, complaining unnecessarily about how something works. Um, and I, I'm curious. You're, you talk in um, some of your your, your your on your blog and in your bio about working with culinary diplomats and um, I think that what you're touching on from your your past travels of um, you know speaking with people in the markets and all of that is maybe referring to some of the people who are culinary diplomats but it's a term that I had never heard before and I, I feel like probably a, a lot of listeners hadn't either. And I was wondering if you could talk more about what that means to you and what kind of meaning it takes on um, in the context of of travel.
2: That's such a great question. And I have to admit that I first came across the term uh, culinary diplomacy during my job at the Smithsonian. And the first time I heard it was when I was speaking to uh, an Ethiopian restaurateur named Salashi Alifam. And he own and owns and operates a really fantastic white tablecloth restaurant, Ethiopian restaurant in the Georgetown neighborhood of DC. So it's called Das Ethiopian. And Sileshi was telling me uh, about how he conceptualizes his identity. You know, when you go to his restaurant, He will be there every night uh, mingling with his clientele, learning their stories. So many people who go there are actually not from D.C. They're, They're diplomats coming in, they're legislators, they're visitors from across the country and around the globe. And he is just drawn to people's stories and he loves sharing Ethiopian culture with them. And when I asked him in in oral history, because we've archived his story at the museum and we actually have some of his objects on display in our food history exhibition, you know, I asked him, you know, how do you identify, how would you describe your, your work beyond being a restaurateur? And he said, you know, I really see myself as a culinary ambassador. I see myself as someone who is sharing my experiences as an Ethiopian person living in DC, as sharing my culture with people. And, and for, for many of the people who visit his restaurant, it's the first time they've ever tried Ethiopian food. And uh, your listeners may know or may not know that DC has a really vibrant, robust Ethiopian population and has since around the 1970s. It's a huge demographic in, in our migrant population in DC. And so, uh, I, I just loved how Sileshi framed his his sense of self. That that was his role. And then it just built from from there. I was working with a scholar, Johanna Mendelssohn Foreman, in DC, and she is very interested in culinary diplomacy, in communities post-war, post-conflict, and how in communities that may at once been physically uh, physically at odds with each other that food can play a role in building community again after conflict, in healing wounds after conflict, that if you can get people to a table for a meal, that there is something so deeply human about that that ritual of, of coming together to break bread, that that is really at the heart of diplomacy, that your diplomacy being, the art of building relationships, uh, especially in communities that might have tensions with one another, historic or contemporary tensions that food can be that interlocutor, that gel to ease some of those issues. But then diplomacy isn't always about tensions. It can also be about introducing people to to your culture. I was at the Swiss embassy giving a talk for my job a few years ago, and. I, it was a wonderful learning opportunity. I had not really had the chance to learn about Swiss culinary culture and the ambassador there had actually written a cookbook to introduce people to the different regional cuisines and to, you know, let the world know that, that there is a culture of Swiss food and people should know about it and, and, you know, honor that and celebrate it. And so he invited the DC community to come to the embassy and try different dishes and different beverages and and just build new relationships. And and so that's how I kind of see culinary diplomacy. It's really building meaningful relationships through shared meals or through sharing knowledge about food cultures.
1: What I love about the concept of culinary diplomacy and how you've described it is that it kind of creates a space for everyone to play a role and to be a kind of diplomat, both the people sharing their food and the people who are being shared with, because often those are visitors either to a restaurant or to a home or to an entire country who then have something that they can report back on when they get back home to their their own community. Um, So I think it's just such an interesting way of of framing that that relationship in the way that diplomacy often works anyhow. Um, But I had a another question just connected to this relationship between food, food ways and travel because you've talked elsewhere about paying attention to the way that food plays a role in society, and how paying attention to that also then helps you to understand cultural, socioeconomic, and political influences in a particular region, and I wonder if you can talk about your own travel experiences and give an example of where that especially came to light for you.
2: Yeah, that's such a complex question because food itself is is so complex because it reflects these food systems, socioeconomic systems, political systems that are you know can be incredibly contentious um the way i think about things as i'm traveling too for example when i was in latin america i traveled to peru in graduate school to present at a digital humanities conference and i was very interested to to visit some of the historic markets And when we were in Cusco, actually, I was able to go into one of the municipally sponsored markets. And I always find those so interesting because it's a tradition that's really, um, I don't wanna say completely lost in the United States, but the municipally regulated and sponsored market, uh, which was so important in the 1800s through the 1940s, really in the US, has fallen out of favor as a way of uh, feeding populations We've switched more to the grocery store, the chain grocery store, the, now even to online grocery delivery. So when I was in Peru, I was so interested to see the gender difference in who is the face of the business compared to other places I had traveled. For ex- So what I noticed is that women, women were the vendors in the food markets. They were the vendors in the artisan markets. And it reminded me of my historic research in New Orleans where in the antebellum period in the city, black women, many of whom were enslaved were the primary vendors in the city's historic markets. And I was kind of curious to see in what ways women were pushed into these roles because of discrimination based on their sex, based on their race, but then with in that role, how they exercised agency and how they they you know like I said exercised their power to shape the local co- economy and local law to their advantage so I was curious to see that kind of um, gendered labor in Peru versus for example, when I was in Morocco, most of the vendors were men when I was in Turkey, most of the vendors were were men the same with Egypt um And in Italy, for example, as well, many public faces of food businesses in Italy are men, and I would interview Italian people that I was living with or visiting with, and I would ask them about these gender dynamics, and, you know, they would say, yes, the the public face of our restaurants or our, our grocery stores typically are male figures in the family, but... That is not to take away from or deny the power that women play and have in the domestic sphere that they they rule the home kitchen and there's a deep-seated respect for italian women in that space now that's a very traditional view of of gender roles in italy and i think if you would interview you know younger generations living in cities like rome they would say you know that is not that's not the, the gender dynamic that's that's in every family obviously people are are creating new ways and and new gender dynamics based on their just on their lives and preferences but i did find that interesting when i was traveling um you know and just in these different continents and how labor like why does food labor get gendered one way or another um i don't have the answer necessarily for peru um or for morocco that's a little bit outside of my my academic focus in in uh the United States, but it is something that caught my eye and you know that I noticed when I was abroad.
1: Yeah, Peru is such an interesting example. And that's the region where I did my dissertation research on the history of slavery. And it because of that has a similar story to what you were describing in the case of New Orleans, both in terms of the role of African descent women in preparing the things we now think of as Peruvian food. And also because of the the way those women were and are still written about in in cookbooks and in just sort of newspapers and in correspondence in general around the the foodways of the the country there's a a certain kind of nostalgia for that particular kind of labor and there are similarly kind of pejorative and denigrating descriptions of African descent women. So it's just an interesting site that has really interesting connections to, to New Orleans, which makes me think about the potential for these kinds of comparative studies of, of foodways in in slave societies. Perhaps there are already some, but that, that one strikes me as a really interesting point of comparison.
2: You know, I also think about in contrast, perhaps to the municipal markets, Um, If we look at this phenomenon of the the farmer's market as we understand it in the United States today, you know, really emerging in the mid-90s, late 90s in urban centers where you would have people who had often had limited access to fresh produce because they're in city centers, maybe there's chain grocery stores, but they had for a generation at least had limited access to producers of fresh foods. You know, you had to go through the grocery store rather than going to the public market to engage your vendor directly. Now you have the emergence of, of farmers markets where you actually get to meet your farmer, right? Or you get to meet the people who are growing your food, um, usually on a smaller scale. But there is inherent privilege that has emerged in that kind of farmers market culture in the United States. Um, We've seen over time this recognition that prices can be higher because, you know, farmers are trying to make a living and food costs a lot. So if you're not a giant grocery store, you're not necessarily able through like just bulk goods to sell things at uh, lower prices. Right. But there's so many barriers to access for people socioeconomically um, to fresh food. And we've seen efforts from farmers markets to accept SNAP. For example, um, to many farmers markets have nonprofit arms that enable shoppers who may have more means to buy produce that's then donated to community members who may not have easy access to food. You know, it's not a perfect system in the United States, but over time we're working towards a more equitable farmers market. But I will note all of that is to say that farmers markets tend to pop up in, in communities that have wealth, that have wealth disparity as well. And, you know, I lived in Australia for a summer and they had a very lively farmer's market culture there as well. And I was an undergrad at this point. I was working in the sustainability office at Australian National University for one of our summers, one of their winters, and I was in Canberra, which of all places to go in Australia, many Australians laugh when I say I spent a summer, I spent a winter rather in Canberra. They say, oh, you know, oh gosh, too bad you weren't in Sydney or Melbourne or somewhere else. But um, I did really enjoy going to farmers markets. So I wanted to just note that yes, there are there are issues with farmers markets in terms of the socioeconomic barriers in place, but they're working around them. But what I do love about farmers markets is that they can create a sense of community. They can just for a few hours on a Saturday or a Wednesday evening transform a parking lot or an empty, you know, street area into a I don't know, just a kind of like it's, I don't know how to describe it other than the magic of of the farmers' market, which is that it's all about human connection, where you actually do get to interact with the vendor who grew your food, or the person that raised the chickens and that you're buying eggs from, or the person who made, um, you know, maybe some baked goods. And I think in a world today where many people are moving more and more to online consumption we're getting further and further away from the means of production and the people who actually grow our food in that realm to actually be able to go to a space and see your community members, not only the people growing your food, but your neighbors and just have casual conversations. That's, that's the making of community. That's the building block of a shared sense of identity. And, and I think if you look historically, back in time that you see that markets, whether it's a farmer's market or a public market or a street market, so often sit at the core of our lives. It's why we gather, it's why we build towns and cities, it's we need to feed ourselves. And so I do think it's important and I hope that we can move back as a country to a more localized food system where farmer's markets aren't just once a week or a few times a week but they're a major source of our food and an affordable and sustainable source of our food for our diverse communities that there aren't socioeconomic barriers in place that prevent people from accessing that food and the reason i bring up farmers markets too is that i have been to one country only one country and i'd love to hear other stories where the concept of the farmers market didn't really uh, click or make sense. So when I was in Iceland in graduate school, just for a, a short trip, I was on my way to Paris for archival research and I took a few day stop over in Iceland and I went to the local bathhouse there, I listened to free opera concerts in Reykjavik, I took a little nature tour, but obviously I went to the local grocery store and was asking, asking people about their cooking and their lives and what I found so interesting is that I asked some of the people in the grocery store oh is there a local farmers market like on the weekend that I can go to I'd love to check it out because it's like we talked about a way to get to know a place and the person kind of just like stared at me because they were the quote-unquote farmers market idea wasn't translating in our our conversation and so I tried to describe what I was talking about like a outdoor space perhaps with little um, stands or tents where people sell fresh produce and other goods. And they're like, oh no, yeah, we don't do that here. And that was the first instance in my whole life where I went somewhere outside of the United States where a farmer's market culture just wasn't, wasn't part of the community. And I really haven't been to other countries where that's the case, but I did find it shocking that, um, you know, <laughs> Not necessarily a bad thing, but I did, did have to note that Iceland does not have a farmer's culture, as, as far as I understand it. You know, you think about people traveling and they
0: get excited about going to the local market, just like you were trying to find a, lo- a market in Iceland. And so what I've seen is... Our place is catering to this higher end customer and kind of like changing the concept of a market into something that's like a super high end food experience um, rather than being sort of like the market that people go to to get their weekly groceries. Um, And in Boston, the perfect example is in I love this place, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's this place called Boston Public Market, which opened up a few years ago. And it's literally, you know, a stone's throw from Haymarket, which is Boston's historic food market that people have, you know, it's been around for hundreds of years. Um, And Boston Public Market is definitely this, you know, very kind of she-she experience of, really exciting donut flavors and delicious, you know, delicious foods and chocolates and coffee, but it's really not what you would expect as a place where you're going to learn about um, like the culture and history of, of Boston necessarily. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious if that's a trend that you see elsewhere um, and whether it's a trend that maybe you've seen in, in a historic context um, happening in the past and, and, you know, what are the
2: implications of something like that? I'm so glad you brought that up, Shannon. So this is so interesting. I think you'll laugh at me for this, being the, the food market nerd that I am. So I just so happened to be in Boston uh, the opening day of the Boston public market. And of course, I made my no way, way there. <laughs> Yeah. I made my way there to hear the speech from the local, you know, officials talking about what role the public market would play as a community center and bringing people together. And what's interesting is that, as you noted, it wasn't necessarily a space of affordable food. It was a space for, um, you know, higher priced artisan goods where you would buy a a bag of popcorn for 9.99 or you'd get your espresso for five dollars and fifty cents if you're getting a latte or you go to the the local meat shop charcuterie and you buy your um, meat that might be several dollars more expensive per pound than what you might find in your local grocery store so this phenomenon of the fine foods fine foods hall um, is not just in boston as you suspected it's all over the country i mean new orleans has several fine food halls that have popped up some of them actually have been built in historic municipal market houses so from those markets in the 1800s in the first half of, of the 1900s you know those buildings have sat abandoned for a while and now uh, cities are giving grants and and private entrepreneurs are, are trying to get funding to reopen these markets under this new model of a fine food hall. And it's not just in the United States, you see it in a lot of European countries as well. And it's often toted as a um, a space of, of cultural celebration. But as you're kind of hinting at, there are issues with that as well, because they pop up in communities that are going through severe gentrification. We know with gentrification that so many communities who've historically been in that area are can be pushed out, can be marginalized. It's a really horrendous process of of loss for community members who can't stay in, in their local neighborhoods. What I find interesting, and I've actually written about this recently in my book project in the kind of conclusion chapter, is I've looked at these new markets that have emerged in New Orleans and how they're responding to the deeply problematic and pervasive hunger in the city of New Orleans. There are, New Orleans has one of, in Louisiana has one of the highest rates of hunger in the country. And so you have these fine food halls opening up in historic markets where once they actually served as a, a place for affordable fresh food, right? City mandated affordable fresh food for community members. 70 years later, they're renovated and they're opened up for a higher end market So uh, how do community members feel about that? Obviously, some of them are are horrified by it because they see these food halls as a harbinger of gentrification, as a harbinger of of being pushed out of their communities. But some of these entrepreneurs are responding. They're listening to community members. The St. Rock Market, for example, in New Orleans, there was pushback at first and, and a lot of fear. Um, and this is when it opened, I'm trying to think now, 2014, I believe, in the Bywater neighborhood of of New Orleans. And, you know, they had a forum, they had a community forum, the vendors who were in the market, and they asked the community members, what do you need? How can we help um, alleviate your fears? We, we don't want to just be a quote-unquote bougie food place. We want to of to offer local affordable fresh food. And so they worked with community members to try and bring in SNAP, for example, to accept SNAP at the market. They rearranged the market to really foreground the fresh produce grown by local vendors. And they made sure that the prices of the St. Mar- uh, Rock Market were at the same level, No, you know, and definitely not reaching over the cost of produce in the local grocery stores, for example. And I will say that uh, the St. Rock market and many markets, um, these fine food halls around the country are, if not providing incredibly affordable food to people, they are trying to provide and support local business owners. And I think that is really key. You know, these are small scale business owners who are going in and renting a stall in a market that could host anything from 10 stalls to the, you know, the Boston public market has I can't give an exact number, but from when I visited, it seemed maybe more in the range of 40, 50 stalls, right? And that's a a brick-and-mortar location, you know, the larger building. But then they come in, and an entrepreneur can get their business started. They can find their footing, and maybe after finding success at the public market, they can go and open their own brick-and-mortar store. So you can see how these can be incubator spaces, potentially, for for small scale business owners. I've also read a lot of interviews um, of vendors who who have and rented spaces in St. Rock and they've committed to really only hiring people from the local Bywater community. They want this money to go back into the community. They wanna support people who are within walking distance of the market. Uh, You know, they don't want it to be this this symbol of gentrification, they don't want it to be a negative presence in the city, but rather a commitment to community and a, and a commitment to local economy. And so I think There can be a lot of power in reshaping our food economy that's so globalized and through these kind of fine food halls or other kinds of markets to relocalize things to shrink the scale of things and bring money directly back into local communities and i think that's going to be key moving forward as we continue to address issues of hunger and food sustainability in our broken food system to look to the past and and look at these historic market models that were so deeply local and take what's good from that model and, and implement it in our current moment so i'm very hopeful as much as there as there are issues i'm hopeful that these markets and other kind of locally oriented food businesses can provide a path forward, um, more equitable food future for for communities.
1: It's interesting to think about this in the context of travel, both domestic and international, because these upscale food halls tend to just mean that tourists are interacting with other tourists rather than with members of the, the local population. So that's also beyond the fact that the local population isn't, able to benefit from the presence of these halls. It's also something that then costs tourists in a really interesting way.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. And I do think, I will note with the St. Rock uh, Market in New Orleans, like I said, it opened in 2014. And I remember looking at the language of that market on their website. And it was a lot about how this was a historic community space, right? And that this came from a deep market tradition and it was very much focused on that community um, role. And I was revisiting the website a few months ago as I was writing the conclusion and It's for my book. And it's interesting to see now that, in addition to highlighting those commitments to hiring local and, and supporting local communities, there is a lot of reference to travel articles, travel magazines, reviews mm-hmm. in um, other kind of online newspapers and things like that about, oh, must see destination when you visit New Orleans, Uh, get a taste of quote unquote authentic New Orleans at the St. Rock market. So you definitely see uh, that kind of tourism in the post-Katrina tourism boom um, playing a role in in the St. Rock market to say the least.
1: I wanted to switch gears a bit and probe a part of your biography that's really interesting because you have a a background as a musician and it seems like you incorporate that aspect of your background into your current professional and even your your academic uh, research in a really interesting way in terms of teaching and demonstrating the hawker calls of street vendors around the world. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about the the importance of sound as part of the experience of food, especially when it involves travel?
2: I love this question. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. And I'm thinking to myself, how did I not bring this up before? So one of, I will I will note the way that I've seen most of, of the countries I've been to has been through my singing groups. So in college, uh, particularly, but also in grad school, I was part of several acapella groups um, and I was also part of the university choir and there's a very strong tradition with these groups to travel uh, globally and internationally and sing uh, and kind of sing for our supper so to speak and so as an undergrad I've gone to Monterrey, Mexico um, when I was a sophomore. With my senior a cappella group, we did a quote-unquote world tour where we went um, from Hawaii, Japan, Singapore, India, Egypt, Israel, Italy over the course of uh, six or seven weeks. And we stayed with consulates um, in these different countries or host families and we sang a cappella concerts with community groups and at schools and at the consulates and whatnot and that was really the the first time that i was able to see gosh just a huge what for me seemed like a huge swath of the world but obviously just those few countries are, are only a small footprint in in our incredibly um large and and dynamic globe but it was it was breathtaking and what's funny is i think music in that way was a form of diplomacy at that time not necessarily i wasn't necessarily focusing on culinary diplomacy but just building relationships even with people that you may not speak the same language but through melody and and through performance um building connections and and getting that that tingling sensation that I feel when I listen to music that just kind of radiates through my whole body. Um, po- music can be so powerful. And that's on that tour. And that was in 2010. That's when I really started noticing just all the different kinds of food markets and street food culture. And I noticed I came to notice the absence of that in my experiences growing up in the United States, growing up in Pittsburgh and going to school in Connecticut. And that really piqued my interest in um, street food culture. And only later in life did I learn that my grandfather was actually a street vendor before he started our family business. It actually started as a roadside fruit stand in, in the 1940s when he couldn't find work after World War II and he built that small fruit stand up into a corner grocery store and and from there and my mom and aunts took over the business in the 80s but you know music going back to travel music plays a huge role in my academic life because i loved performance and so when i looked back in the archives in new orleans i I mentioned how street vendors were so often included in cookbooks and postcards and there's this tradition not just in the united states but in europe as well of depicting street vendors along with their street vendor cries. And they would actually include on these little postcards or in these cookbooks, you know, an etching of a street vendor with the product they were selling, but then underneath would be a bar of of music. Um, And they'd actually mark out in musical notation the the street vendor cry about blackberries or or about uh, gumbo or, you know, about pralines. And I just found that so fascinating. That sound played such an important role in understanding these street vendors. And I I tried to pay attention to that, not just to see it as a, oh, that's an interesting quirk that's found in the archival record, but to think, why do we see time and time again that these street calls are paired with these images of street vendors? And and I wanted to take that seriously. And, And the way I did that was to really conceive of and see these street cries as a form of business. It's a form of marketing. There's an artistry to it. There's creativity in it. Um, you know, street vendors used popular melodies of songs from the time, and they would switch out the words to match their products. Or you see vendors working in pairs and, and singing in melody to attract or through call and response to attract uh, customers to their food stalls. And so I have spent a lot of time um, thinking about and studying the sonic culture of food and just trying to imagine what the city streets of New Orleans must have sounded like in the 1840s or in the 1880s when there were hundreds, hundreds of vendors roaming the city crying out their wares all at the same time, you know, in this great cacophony uh, of sound. I mean, people wrote about it, how the city streets reverberated with the cries of street vendors starting at dawn. And so it's a powerful presence. It was like the morning alarm bell for the city of New Orleans, these street vendor cries. And so I do think about that a lot uh, in, in my work this sonic culture of food, which I think so often slips out of our minds when we think about consumption. You know, it's about taste, it's about feel, smell, and definitely visual culture. But sound, especially with food entrepreneurship, can play a a major role. And so uh, that really does tie back to my experience with acapella and my travel around the world and seeing those markets. It really all comes together. And now it's a part of my, my book project, which I never... I never foresaw that. You know, I didn't foresee that coming, but I love that it's a part of my work because it's also reflective of my my personal life and personal experiences.
0: What a great story and example. Um I I actually I'm thinking about you know, as you were talking about these street vendor cries, I was racking my brain to try to remember any experiences I've had traveling where i've heard the cries and i i'm not coming up with any but then it hit me that a song that i i sing as a lullaby to my my kids and you're gonna be like oh i know what you're talking about um is a street vendor cry song um the i don't know if you know um molly malone it's i guess an irish song um but it's like in dublin's fair city where girls are so pretty and then it's like um, cockles and muscles alive, alive, Um, and that must, I. is that a street vendor song? Do you know
2: the song? Am I way off? <laughs> you know, I would imagine that comes from street vendor cries because in in Europe in particular, there was a really strong culture of recording street vendor cries and often putting them into children's literature because going to the market and teaching kids about the different vendors was kind of, Um, getting them ready for life. You know, you often saw uh, these, these street cries in, in books written specifically for kids. So I would not be surprised if that is a holdover um, from that Mm -hmm. kind of like literature in the 1800s, um, sticking in our culture, just like Ring Around the Rosie. I mean, that's from the, like, you know, the plague, the great Black Death plague of hundreds of years ago, but it's still here. And, you know, there are examples of street vendor cries even today. I was in Cleveland um, several years ago for the first time, and naturally I went to their historic Western, um, I think it's the Western market. Um, And this is a market that's actually retained its role as a fresh food market since the early 1900s it's a a very rare example in the u.s a lot of times our historic markets have turned into tourist destinations you see this with the french market in new orleans most of the stalls now are trinkets they sell tourist trinkets and things like that but in cleveland that's not the case and i was walking through the fruit vendor stalls and there was a man who was singing out about blackberries And I was having one of these moments like, oh my gosh, I'm actually, I feel like I'm stepping back in time. Like this is, this must be what it was like, it was like, you know, decades ago, a hundred years ago for many of the people I study. But then the best part was he improvised. And I was wearing a t-shirt from undergrad. I was wearing a t-shirt that had Yale University on it. And he switched his vendor cry to incorporate the reference to Yale, and he was, he was saying Yaley's Yale's love blackberries too, and that just brought like the biggest smile to my face because I was witnessing this contemporary moment of this, you know, business strategy, this improvisation, this performance that I wrote about, in, or that I write about in my book about street vendors of the past, but it's still alive today in the present moment, and that, um, I don't know. That made that made my heart feel really warm. Um, that there's still parts of that culture alive, even in the United States.
0: So just that that feeling of excitement when you make those realizations. I, that's so much what we want our wandering scholars that we work with to feel when they travel, and and to have their own personal like heart going pitter patter because they made some kind of connection with. A personal interest of theirs while traveling. Um, and I'm curious if you have any advice on how students can can make those discoveries for themselves when it comes to learning about, you know, the foodways of, of different countries. Um, how can they kind of get into the type of headspace that you're in when you travel um, and and find a connection that's important to them? Do you have any keywords of advice you could give our wandering scholars and listeners who are just interested in always learning while traveling
2: yeah of course i think something that i try to do if i'm going to a new place i've never been before or even a place i'm returning to i i try to reach out to someone who I might know, maybe not directly, but through a friend of a friend or, you know, someone that I might know through a network of some sort. And, and I ask them, what's what's your favorite place to go to for a meal and why? Um, or, you know, is there is there a coffee shop you really love? Or is there a market that just really captures the essence of, of your community for you and, and would you be willing to share with me what that location is? and so I think that's kind of the best way is to rely on on community members knowledge and and if they're willing to share and if they they're encouraging of you to visit these places to do that I mean there's there's nothing greater than um, experiencing a community, through a local's eyes, if that makes sense. And I think that's a brilliant way to travel in general, and it's something that I try to do. Um, when, When people are kind enough to open their home to you or share their recommendations with you to visit a place and just go around with locals, that's my favorite kind of travel experience. It feels more quotidian, more everyday, but it's more fulfilling to me than going to a place where I'm on my own and I'm trying to use, you know, travel websites to figure out what places to go to. It seems a little more disjointed. It seems a little less engaging with the actual people who are living in in these communities and so, you know, you might think as a high schooler, well, well, I don't really have the biggest network. I'm only 14, 17 years old. How am I gonna find someone um, in these other communities? But you never know, maybe someone you're at school with has family in a different country or maybe they've been there themselves. And so I would always say first and foremost, if you have the opportunity, um, ask someone who lives in that community what they love and and take their suggestions to heart And visit that place or if they're willing, go with them and, and, you know, ask if you can tag along and, and experience their city or their hometown with them. And I think that can be honestly a life changing experience. So that would be my advice.
1: thanks for listening to why we wander our theme song is by andrew heating if you like the show please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and consider signing up for one of our intentional travel workshops they start on january 30th and run monthly through the end of june for more info visit thewanderingscholar.org intentional-travel or find us on social media